You may be seated. All right, let's take our Bibles out and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Here in a moment we'll be looking at verse 13. This will be the final chance we'll be looking at this particular slide behind me, the title slide of a sermon series we've been going through for several weeks now. We'll not have a sermon series beginning next week because next week is our Thanksgiving program for the kids, but the week after that we'll start a new one. But we've been going through the core of the local church or the local church itself. And I would contend that the church of our generation, as I hope you've seen even as we've gone through this series, is shot deep with deep-seated theological problems. In a hundred different ways and in a hundred different venues, the contemporary church is struggling. And in that case, I don't want it to initially be discouraging, although that can be as I start a sermon that way. But I want to encourage you with this thought that in that case, we're kind of reading like the church of Corinth. In fact, you could say every problem that plagued the Corinthian church is a hallmark of the culture in which you and I are called to serve Christ today. If there's a parallel culture in the Bible, Corinth would certainly fit the bill. I don't know about you, but for me, it's actually a great encouragement to know that. To know that this 21st century problems that we may face is not something that Paul was totally foreign to. Paul was familiar with, and Paul knew what it was like to wrestle through what we consider to be contemporary problems. But if you look at the history books and you study at all what Paul wrote about the Corinth culture, even the Corinth church itself, you come to discover that there's a lot of, it's almost like you're looking at a mirror when it comes to 2022. But the verses we're opening to today, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, is really interesting. It's Paul's one verse summary of everything that he's already said to the Corinth church. And we'll read that summary in verse 13 here in a moment. But notice, we are just 10 verses from the end of the epistle. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. We're only 10 verses from the end of this epistle. In verses 1 through 3 of this same chapter, Paul gives to them instructions for a special offering, specifically financial aid for the saints and how that all is supposed to work. In verses 4 through 6 of this same chapter, Paul outlines his travel plans. He explains to them the means by which he intended to have their charitable gifts delivered to Jerusalem. That's in verses 4 through 6. In verses 7 through 12, Paul assures of them his desire to visit them in Corinth. But he says that he can't right away. He's, he's held up, and so there'll be an extended time before he can finally get there. And so in every way he could, Paul was reassuring them of his personal care for them. And he has to do that on purpose, because you read about earlier in this book, there were those who were actually kind of basically saying that Paul didn't care about the Corinth church, and he's saying, no, I do, and I do want to visit you. There's other things that are keeping me from visiting you, but I want to. In verses 15 through 20, the verses after the verse we're about to read, Paul has a few more personal words of admonition and some words of recognition and some words of greeting that he gives directly to the church. In verses 21 through 24, it's really interesting because Paul apparently takes the pen from his amanuensis, or the one that's been writing it for him as Paul has been dictating it, and Paul signs his name and writes by his own hand the final closing salutations to end this book in verses 21 through 24. And you are, I trust, familiar, if you're not already, with the larger context of this book. The epistle deals with a long laundry list of problems. There's a lot of problems in the Corinth church. To name a few, there's an open incestuous sin that was so brazen 
that even the Gentiles would blush, and it was going on in the Corinth church. There was disorder, there was gross misconduct, there was even drunkenness at the Lord's table of all places in the Corinth church. They were abusing charismatic gifts, they were causing utter chaos in the worship services, they were filing lawsuits one against another in secular courts. I mean, there was major problems in the Corinth church. And the church had major problems of almost, you could say, every conceivable kind. And Paul has addressed all of these problems, and he's addressed them meticulously in this letter. And now he comes towards the end of this letter, and he sums up in one verse all that he has been trying to say by dealing with these problems meticulously one at a time. Now in one verse, he sums it all up. And here's what he says in verse 13. Here's his summary statement. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, now be strong. Immediately, you can say, that's a pretty easy passage to preach, right? There's your outline right there, separated by commas. There's four points. That's pretty much how it is. I don't think I've ever heard this message preached from this verse without four points, because there they are right there. Now, I didn't preach this message tonight just because it's so easy to outline, but because it is important. There are four imperatives, and you know, all of them have military overtones. Did you notice that? And frankly, many evangelicals miss this. I think some pastors seem to have decided that American bandstand or let's make a deal is a better model for the New Testament church than the one we read about here in this verse. It's militaristic. Even some of the more toned-down examples I could cite demonstrate evangelicals don't really think we are at war against false religions and spiritual lives. I've been preparing a sermon series that will be starting in two weeks on pneumatology, and it's incredible to see how the Holy Spirit is dealt with in, in ways that are just, frankly, blasphemous. There was, I listened to it online, a what they called the Holy Spirit honky-tonk or the Holy Spirit boogie dance that people were doing. I watched a video of it in their church. That's just brazenly, I could say, stupid, if you will. It's just bizarre. Just read the books and blogs who talk about the mission and cult how culturally relevant we have to be in order to, be, to reach this world. But friends, the Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's a grievous sin to be avoided. Friendship with the world is wrong. The church is supposed to be an army waging war against worldly values, not Hollywood's welcome wagon. And postmodern churchmen seem terrified, though, by the militant language in Scripture, frightened by the prospect of contending earnestly for the faith. They might say to you, you can't contend earnestly for, for the faith in a rationalistic post-modern universities and keep any kind of academic respectability. Or they say, well, why not serve high tea and buttered scones and skit down with our ideological adversaries and have a polite dialogue about where we might have common ground? Now, that seems so much more charitable and civil, doesn't it? But that's not what this verse is saying. And you might ask, why does the warfare metaphor get so often linked to the church? Because this isn't the only passage that uses militaristic wording when it talks about the church. 
And this militant language is not even just uncommon to this passage in 1 Corinthians. It's seen in other passages as well. And that's why I've called this message the church's marching orders, as if to imply that there's a militaristic campaign that we're supposed to be on the lookout for. And Paul uses warfare metaphors all throughout this book. In fact, in chapter 9, Paul uses a soldier metaphor for Christian ministry. And he says that in chapter 9, verse 27, in verse 7. In chapter 9, verse 26, Paul uses a boxing metaphor for a Christian ministry. And you can imagine putting on the gloves, and maybe they weren't even putting on the gloves back then. Maybe it was just bare-knuckle brawls. They were boxing. In chapter 14, verse 18, he talks about the, the cry of a, of a bugle calling out the cavalry to come. And he uses that to apply it to Christian ministry. Ephesians 6, of course, is all about Christian warfare and putting on the armor of God. So is 2 Corinthians 10, and the militant theme of that verse is permeate into our culture today. Paul was determined himself to be a warrior engaged in a serious conflict because there was a problem that needed to be battled against. It seems that Paul has been saying often that every Christian must be a warrior. Our strategy is to dismantle the false belief systems that keep people in bondage. And our weapon is the truth, specifically the truth of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And that is not as to say that we are supposed to be pugnacious. We don't relish conflict for conflict's sake. Second Timothy will say in chapter 2, foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they gender strifes. That's not what we're supposed to be. But let's also be aware that not every point that comes under dispute is petty and trifling. Not every debate is foolish, ignorant controversy. Because the same apostle who urged those that read Timothy to avoid foolish and unlearned questions also said to Titus in Titus 1, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers whose mouths must be stopped. So apparently there are debates, there are arguments that need to be stopped in their tracks. Being gentle and patient doesn't mean yielding ground to purveyors of false doctrine. But we live in a culture that has lowered the tolerance level so far down that any candid conversation has practically zero in the name of false and phony standards of charity and gentleness. You're not allowed to say that's wrong anymore. That's what it seems like. You know, one of the favorite slogans of our age is, let's just agree to disagree. And then everybody is supposed to do whatever point of truth is under discussion, set it aside, because that's trivial and unnecessary. We just have to agree to disagree. And the mentality, in that mentality, rather, of a refusal to fight for any truth has done horrific damage to our churches. Let's just agree to disagree. Well, no, actually. How about we agree to argue until one of us actually refutes the other and we come to a common understanding of Scripture? How about that? Now, I'm honestly not pleasing for a spirit of constant consternation. That's not what we're talking about. We're not arguing about whether or not you're wrong or I'm right. We're arguing over whether or not the Word of God is true. And if it is true, and that is truth, then truth is worth staking our claim in. 
But the fact that evangelicals currently have a lot of house cleaning to do should cause us to first stay awake. Our first point comes right from the first two words of this verse. Watch you, is what he's saying. And Paul uses a word that speaks of staying alert, being attentive, or standing guard. Watch you is how it's translated in your English Bibles. It's actually a single word in the Greek. It's used 22 times, that single word is used 22 times in the New Testament, often with regard to the coming of Jesus Christ himself. The word is used six times in Matthew's gospel alone and three times in Matthew 24 and 25 when it is explained to use of end time parables, talking about this coming when Christ would come that you should watch for. And his point is an argument for careful, vigilant anticipation of a coming return. Watch you, is what he's saying. And so it says in Matthew 24, watch therefore, it's the same word, for you know not the hour when your Lord comes. Jesus uses the same expression three other times in Matthew 26 when talking to the, in the garden to his disciples. He says in Matthew 26, verse 41, 40 and 41, he cometh unto the disciples and finds them asleep, says unto Peter, what could you not watch, that's the same word with me, one hour, watch and pray, that's the same word that you enter not into temptation, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there he is talking about practical and prayerful watchfulness, staying awake, being alert in the face of danger that they didn't see coming, that they wouldn't repeat the same error. And then Jesus uses the same word twice in his message to Sardis, the the dead church in Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3, which, by the way, is a fitting message for the church today. Here's what he says to Sardis, the dead church. Be watchful, he says. Strengthen the things which remain, that... You are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. And here he's saying, watch out, be alert, stay awake, don't drift. He uses the same word in his warning to Sardis in the next verse when he says in verse 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He says that to a church. So this is a doctrinal, practical, and eschatological word. That's what it is. And Paul clearly has all of those things in mind when he says to the Corinthians, watch. What is he talking about? He's talking about watch for the end times. Watch practically. Don't just sit around, do something, and watch doctrinally. That's, he has clearly all of those implications in mind when he uses this word. The mass of modern and postmodern evangelicals simply ignore that command. In fact, I'm tempted to say they rebel against it. Many are simply too arrogant to think they need an admonition like this. They carelessly think they are skilled enough and knowledgeable enough to recognize any and every error before it even comes in. So they don't need to be like super alert. They're already too smart for error. They won't be duped into error. We don't mind reading, for that matter, about Spurgeon's courage. Charles Spurgeon, if you didn't know, had the courage and foresight to preach hard in his day against what was called the downgrade controversy. And you read about it. If you read anything about Spurgeon, we read about it with a a level of respect and admiration that this guy is preaching hard against error in his time, and he did quite frequently. Here's what he said in his era. Here's a quote in his era. It is very pretty, is it not, 
to read of Luther and his brave deeds. This is Spurgeon talking. Of course, everybody admires Luther. But you do not want anyone else to do the same thing today that Luther did. This is what Spurgeon is talking about. If you remember what Luther did, Luther boldly proclaimed there's a wrong. When you go, Spurgeon continues, when you go to the zoo to admire all the bears, but how would you like a bear at home or a bear wandering loose in the street? You tell me that would be unbearable. Apparently uh, Spurgeon had quite a few dad jokes in his collection. (laughs) And no doubt he continues, you are right. So we admire a man who is firm in the faith, say 400 years ago. The past ages are sort of a bear pit and an iron cage for him. But such a man today is a nuisance and must be put down. We call him narrow-minded or a bigot. Or give him a worse name, if you can think of one yet, and imagine if those, in those days all the same words would have been used for the likes of Zwingli and Luther and their compadres. If they had said the world is out of order, but if we are trying to set it right, there would have been those in the church who would have said they are a disgrace, meaning Luther is a disgrace. Spurgeon was appealing to history in making his point. He's saying, you guys loved it when Luther preached hard against error, but when I or others do, suddenly it's wrong. He continues and puts it this way. Such conduct on their part would have entailed on us an heritage of honor. We love it. But in our day, it would be a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps and all the pestiferous bogs of error would have swallowed all. I don't know about you, but nobody talks about pestiferous bogs of error anymore. (laughs) But what he's saying is that the need for vigilance, the need for staying awake, is far greater, Spurgeon was saying, in his day than ever before. How about on our day? Every biblical description of apostasy and spiritual error fits with our generation perfectly, really. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5 urges us, and you know this text. It says, This know also that in the last day perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of self, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Does this sound like 2022 a little bit to you? Watch without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away, is what he says to Timothy. Sounds like some marching orders. Stay alert. Like the watchman out on the field, staying awake lest the battle comes in. Stay awake. Watch out. Look out over your own hearts over yourselves, over your passions, over your words, over your deeds, over your friends, over this church, over its doctrine. Be watchful. Be watchful lest this church becomes another statistic in a long line of churches that have fallen into error. Don't think that couldn't be us. Stay awake and stand firm. On the heels of the first command comes the next. Stand firm in the faith. And 
Notice what Paul does in these two verses. In the first command, as he talks about stand firm in the faith, and notice what he does in these first two commands. In the first command, he says, be watchful. It anticipates Paul's closing salutations of verse 22. If you look at your Bibles in verse 22, it says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. What does maranatha mean? The Lord's coming. He's anticipating what he's about to say. And the second command is an echo of the closing verse of chapter 15. If you go back to chapter 15, you read the last verse of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in the vein in the Lord. So specifically, Paul has, is going to repeat himself here. Now, anytime a teacher repeats himself, especially a teacher under the pen of inspiration, so we could say anytime God repeats himself, you've got to know that there's something worth really sticking into your brain and into your heart. Listen to what Charles Hart Hodge said about this command. He was commenting on this verse. He said, Do not consider every point of doctrine an open question. Matters of faith, doctrines for which you, are, that you have a clear revelation from God, for example, as the doctrine of the resurrection, are considered and must be considered settled matters. And as among Christians, no longer matters of dispute. These are doctrines embraced in the creeds of all Orthodox churches, clearly taught in Scripture, so that no one can uselessly say, let's have a conversation. In other words, we don't debate that. We're going to host a Saturday exercise on whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. We will stand firm in that faith. But today's culture tells us that we are supposed to refuse to be too, un, too certain or dogmatic about everything. That's what our, today's culture is basically saying. Like, if there's one certainty in today's culture, it is that you can't be certain about anything. It was kind of ironic. Tolerance at all levels, basically, unless you can't tolerate what I tolerate. But that is not humility, friends. In fact, it's the opposite of humility. That is unbelief. It is not arrogant to have firm, immovable, biblical convictions. In fact, it is our duty to to be precise because these are not our truths, they're God's truths. This is why Colossians would say, if you continue steadfast in the faith, grounded and settled, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which you have preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. I'm not going to budge on this stuff. Stability is good. It's a precious, humble virtue. It's a necessary virtue for church leaders especially. Second Peter would say, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest you also, being led away from the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. What's he saying? Don't let go. Don't refuse. Hold tight to these convictions. The psalmist would say, and might not be as their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. I bring that verse up to say, what is the definition of a rebellious, stubborn generation? It's a generation with no biblical convictions. That's what it is. So you could be stubborn and not steadfast. 
Here's what he says in verse 37 of Psalm 70, 38, 78. Rather. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Everything was up for debate. Paul says, hey, here's your conviction, here's your marching orders. Stay awake. Stand firm. If you are tempted to tone that down, apologize it for it or explain it away, you are moving away from convictions. First of all, make sure they're biblical convictions. But when they are biblical convictions, it is God's word that says, thus says the Lord. And then what do you do? Well, you can see it in the verse. You probably could write this sermon for me. What do you do next? Act like men is what he says. Literally, be men or be manly. Paul uses a Greek verb in the middle voice, which is another word imperative here that is telling them, be you yourselves manly. That's basically the best way to translate it, really strictly. It is, it is hard to make it into one word, a command in English. Literally, it means, it's, hard, it's a one word again. It's hard to make it into one word in English. But if you want to kind of give it some, flesh it out, you could, you could kind of translate it this way, play the man. Or in modern terminology, man up. Maybe that would be a better way for you. It's a word that speaks of masculinity as opposed to femininity. He is not saying be grown-ups rather than children. What he is saying is act like men, not like little girls. That's basically the best way to, to interpret what Paul is saying. And there are really two aspects to this command from the Paul to the Corinthians. What he's saying is, act like men, or quit you like men. He's saying, act like men and be courageous. And I don't, I don't prefer quit you like men, just because it doesn't quite understand what people... I think quit meant something different when they wrote that in 1611 than it does now. But he's saying, act like men, be courageous. And Paul is sweeping up and including in that command attributes like courage and strength and boldness, stout-heartedness, heroism, daring, gallantry. I think we're on the heels of Veterans Day. That's a great verse for Veterans Day, really. That's, that's what he's talking about, that kind of a hero, that kind of a courage. And act like men and work is what else he is saying. When God created Adam, remember, he made him before the fall to work in the garden. Work is not a result of the fall. Hard work, the difficulty of your labor, is a result of the fall. But work is not a result of the fall. God wants men to work. But remember the context is militant. This, first of all, is a call to bear arms then. And it's a summons to battle. He is, saying like, he is basically saying, fight like men. Defend the faith in a manly way. It is worth noting that this verse is written to the whole church, however. This is not addressed to men only. This is addressed to everyone. Much less does Paul single out only the leaders of the church. He's addressing everyone. So this applies to every Christian. And there is a sense in which even the women in Corinth needed to cultivate the strength and fortitude of a warrior like Deborah in the book of Judges. That's what he's saying. He's saying, be that kind of person. And what happened to this attitude in our church today? Or in our churches today? Most of our churches, collectively in America in particular, are seeker-sensitive. That's kind of a common thing. They might be gender-neutral, transparent. We are told to be sentimental and delicate. 
These sound like rules for figure skaters, not warriors, quite frankly. <laughs> and these trends have garnered attention in recent years. The church is not reaching and ministering to men. We're actually driving them away. But those who observe that men aren't coming seek to have their own solutions which create more bad problems. They'll say, well, we're not reaching men, so let's have a men's Bible study over beers, cigars, and poker games. I've seen that. You can go on. That's happening. We're not reaching men, so let's get the men watching cage fighting and blood sport of some kind and just be men. Or, Or... Maybe the pastor will say, let's salt our vocabulary from the pulpit with a sailor's favorite expletives, and that will be manly. Dress up and pretend. That's masculinity. But none of these things come anywhere close to the essence of true viral masculinity. In fact, those are the kinds of things little boys do. They play pretend. Paul has none of those things in mind when he says to the Corinthians, man up. He is telling them simply and straightforwardly, be bold, sober-minded, mature, committed to your calling, knowing your calling like soldiers. I've not been a soldier, but it's Veterans Day or weekend. I've been told that they've got to know things. (laughs) They've got to memorize the book. They need to know their SOPs. I've been told that they will be grilled on this stuff. They will be steeped in it so that when they come into boot camp, they might be one person, and the goal is when they exit, they're totally someone different. Did you know that's the kind of marching orders God wants his churchmen to be like and women? Anybody could come in. Praise the Lord. God saves everyone if they will come to him. But he is not going to leave you the same. There aren't gomer piles in the Lord's USMC. Sorry. So be men, be steadfast, be strong. Those are character qualities. And they are sandwiched between them, this idea, act like men. So the imperatives in that string of command basically explain one thing. Strength, steadfastness, courage, even vigilance. And we need that in our day and age. That's why it says, be strong, fourthly, even though it says number three, fourthly. It's not enough to just be bold. Christian soldiers need to be strong in order to withstand opposition and persecution. If you're going to enter the battle in earnest, you need to be able to endure antagonism, derision, controversy, contempt. You need to be able to endure abuse of every kind. John 15, verse 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I think our American church might need to hear that. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, at the same time, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you are faithful, you will be persecuted. And in this worldly realm, you can pretty much count on one thing. Those who persecute you will be going from bad to worse. It will be going from low positions to high positions. Things are not getting better. 
Praise the Lord, actually, this is not your best life now. And you need the strength to stand in the battle. By the way, if you didn't notice, Paul is not talking about physical strength. Again, our weapons of this warfare are not of the flesh. Paul is talking about character. And what it requires is a strength of character, integrity, combined with an unflagging persistence. I won't quit because I know God is with me. I wish some of the, even the adults could come and hear the stories, some of the missionary hero stories that we give to the kids at the five o'clock hour. I love hearing them. They're written on a kid's level, so I'm sure they leave out a lot of the details that as an adult I can read and you would be as well, and you can be able to piece together some of what they're saying. But there are some incredible stories of these men and women who have given it all. I mean, I remember we, we told the story of John and Betty Stamm, who were martyred for their faith. Right now we're in the story of Hudson Taylor. I mean, that guy couldn't catch a break, it would appear, for like every twist and turn along the journey, and he wouldn't quit. It was just incredible. We, we've told the story of George Mueller, who was called to serve children and had literally nothing in his pockets, but he had faith in his heart, and he just wouldn't quit, even when his whole neighborhood pretty much ganged up on him and tried to close it down. These are incredible examples. And I can't help but think as we're reading that and wonder, where are those kind of people? They basically say, I, I, these church marching orders, like they haven't changed. And they're also not incredibly hard to understand. In fact, if I read that verse again, as we will, it says in verse 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit like men, be strong. Most of you, if you have your head screwed on, know what that means. So as we close, let me quickly draw your attention to verse 14. Because this is the vital punctuation mark to everything that we've talked about today and in this whole series. It's so important that you get verse 14. You can get verse 13, and if you leave verse 14 out, you will have failed. Let all your things be done with love or charity. This is an echo and an end summary, again, a summary statement of what Paul has already said in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. And if you're into chapter content, you know what chapter 13 is. That's the love chapter, right? <laughs> and Paul is saying, all of what you do, yes, I want you to be soldiers, and I want you to quit like men, and I want you to watch vigilantly, and I want you to be willing even to fight if necessary, for good doctrine, but you need love. Now, lots of people are tempted to read verse 14 as if it nullifies all of verse 13. And it doesn't. Love does not nullify verse 13. Love defines the commands of verse 13. We need to remember that the whole point of tearing down those strongholds of error is to liberate people who have been held in bondage by them. And therefore, everything we do, watching, standing firm, 
showing manly courage and determination, and drawing on the Lord's strength, it's all done in love. Why did, as we read Spurgeon's quotes, why did Spurgeon preach so boldly against error in his day? Because he was just a grumpy old man saying, get off my lawn. That's not what was going on. He did it because he loved his neighbors and he was concerned for their soul. Friend, we have... I want, I just, I just want us, as we close, because we're closing out this series, I want us to just get our eyes off Faith Baptist Church of Palm Bay just for a second. I am so glad that God has raised up an army right here. Aren't you? I'm, I'm just glad to be a part of it. I'm, I'm glad to be a part, shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm so thankful for you. But did you know there are very well-meaning of your neighbors and your coworkers who may have gone to church today of whatever stripe, who may have sat under the teaching of of terrible, bad doctrine. Are you burdened about that? Like, like wouldn't you just kind of want to fight for that? Like, you might be able to know those people. You might be able to name those people. Is that, is that not enough to just like fire you up? Like I'm not one for like motivational speeches and I'm not a drill sergeant by any means. And, but may, maybe I, I, I can't help but think of like my football coaches in high school that would give rah-rah speeches before the game to get you all amped up so you run out and hit them in the teeth when you get out there. Like, I, I can't help but read verse 13 in my coach's voice a little bit and I won't even try to impersonate it, right? I feel like that's the kind of intensity. And if, if I can encourage you with one thing as we close, because we're closing out this series, read 1 Corinthians with that in mind. Because Paul has just poured out himself before these people. and he, I mean, there are some rank problems there. I mean, there are some gross problems that are going on in that church. I mean, he, and he is invested into them. He has poured the word of God into their lives. And he gets to the end, and it's as if, like, Paul is like one of those preachers that, like, kind of started small. You ever listen to those preachers? It just almost starts with, like, a whisper. And then as he goes, it's like he gets more and more animated. Sometimes I'm like that. He gets more and more animated until the end. He's, like, just slamming the pulpit and pacing up there. And he gets to verse 13, and I, I imagine that Paul's not angry, though. I imagine Paul might be just choking back tears because he really cares. And he looks at the culture and it's gross. And he looks into the church and it's gross. And he's just burdened. And it's after all of that that Paul, through the love of Christ, sounds forth like a clarion cry, like a bugle that says to the cavalry charge, and he says, watch, guys, watch, watch. Lord could come at any point. Make sure your doctrine is pure. Make sure you're practically engaged. Stand fast, firm in the faith. Just, you know, just, just don't budge. Just don't budge. Maybe Paul's thinking, I'm not going to be here forever. I just want you to know what I've given to you. It's going to stay the same. Don't budge. Quit like men. Just Stop playing around with your dollies, basically, is what he's saying. Be strong in the Lord. 
Oh, and by the way, let all your things be done with love. That's why I'm telling you this, guys. Let it all be done with love. The love of Christ, then, is the one that constrains us to do all these things. Every faithful Christian must be that kind of warrior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example Paul sets to the Corinthian believers and now to us this evening. Lord, these are a sobering challenge from Paul to us, that we would be the kind of people that would, in fact, be on fire for you, but so vigilant with our love and compassion for the truth, quite frankly. Lord, may we never forget the fact that what we have housed in your word is not just to be kept on a shelf somewhere, but it is to be poured over, to be studied, to be put into our lives, into our practices. May we do exactly as Paul has asked in these marching orders to the church.